Hey guys, happy holidays, happy Christmas. That's right. Welcome to the 64th episode of The Goods Film Podcast. Today we will be discussing the film Happy Christmas, which is why I assume Brian greeted us that way. Or I'm English. Yeah. My brothers and I always found it hilarious. We latched on to stupid things. I Did you latch on? I'm sure you latched on to stupid things when you were a kid. Oh, yeah. We always found it hilarious, the Britishisms in the Harry Potter movies. And I just distinctly remember, like, we were kind of sugar high. We'd probably been having, like, a soda while watching a movie. And my, my little brother, Jeremy, just running around the house shouting, Happy Christmas! Happy Christmas! After we watched the first Harry Potter movie, because that's what the characters say to each other. Or I think it was, like, on TV, and it was a commercial break, and he started doing that. Anyways... Happy Christmas is a, I suppose, the the English way of saying Merry Christmas and also the name of this 2014 film. Happy Christmas. So as I mentioned at the end of the last episode, this is one I've been looking forward to picking for a while because I've been looking for the right opportunity to bring in a film in the mumblecore genre, or I suppose subgenre. I don't know exactly what you call it. It, mumblecore kind of is a phrase that to me I think of a similar, not in style, but in its semantic usage with the phrase film noir, in that it's not really a genre, it's more of like a descriptor, but they all kind of end up doing somewhat similar genre things, and you usually know one if you see one. In some ways, it's kind of hard to define because of that, and people often disagree exactly what the, the word itself means and like whether a movie is, in fact, in that category. So for Mumblecore, have you watched anything is in the Mumblecore genre or that at least that you knew was in the Mumblecore genre? No, I never have. This is a word I've heard used pretty much exclusively by people who are pretty deep into film. Uh, so it's good that I'm finally checking the box, you know, checking out some Mumblecore. Actually, I think specifically where I've heard of it is on, surprise, surprise, Buzzed On Movies, a podcast in uh, one of their episodes, they were covering the VHS horror series, where it's like small-time directors making segments in an anthology film. Uh, they described that as mumblecore horror, also known as mumblegore. Yeah, if you go to the mumblecore Wikipedia page, they have a whole section in there on mumblegore. Swanberg, the director and co-star of this film, actually directed a segment in VHS. He mostly does like traditional mumblecore, which is like just relationshipy, dialogue-y stuff. He also does some like edgier stuff. He's done a little bit of horror. He does like uh, erotic thrillers and erotic dramas too. So he's a pretty interesting guy, but I'll, I'll talk more about him here in a sec. I just want to read what Wikipedia has as the definition of mumblecore because I think captures it pretty well. Mumblecore is a subgenre of independent film characterized by naturalistic acting and dialogue, sometimes improvised, low-budget film production, an emphasis on dialogue over plot, and a focus on the personal relationships of people in their 20s and 30s. I wanted to add a couple more things that I include in my definition of Mumblecore. One is that, so this is kind of, I guess, implied in saying it emphasizes dialogue over plot. In most Mumblecore movies, 
not too much happens. There's subtle shifts in relationships. There might be like an incident that is not all that climactic. There's certainly one or two of those in this one. But I don't know. I, I kind of wonder if the mumblecore generation of filmmakers was inspired by Richard Linklater or, I don't know, any other filmmakers who kind of make hangout movies. This isn't really a hangout movie. Maybe it is, but it's it's not very plot-focused. I mean, it's certainly plausible that they could have been influenced by Linklater based on this example. And yeah, I would not call this a hangout movie. I guess there are times when characters are hanging out, but it just feels heavier than that. Yeah. It's like somewhere between a hangout movie and an after-school PSA special about don't do drugs and drink. Oh, interesting. That is... Not necessarily one of my takeaways, but we can talk more about that. A couple other things that I think of as mumblecore characteristics. One is that the directors and actors often cross over quite a bit with each other. So someone will direct a movie that another director will act in and vice versa. A lot of the actors who have been in a bunch of mumblecores have also directed a handful of them. Swanberg, for example, appears in some of his movies. Like I mentioned, he, he stars in this one. The, the Duplass, I think that's how you say it, brothers, they produce and direct a whole bunch of movies, but they also act in a bunch of movies. So you often see the creative forces in front of the screen, although not always in their own movies. Another thing that I think of as distinctly mumblecore is a lot of cringy humor or uncomfortable scenarios. Did you notice any of those in this one, Brian? Hmm. Sort of. I mean, maybe uncomfortable. I don't know if it was cringy exactly. Yeah, it's not like Michael Scott in The Office cringy. It's just, like, socially uncomfortable. Nobody was asking, like, Minecraft Q&A questions. Right. <laughs> just a brief history on Mumblecore. Pretty much everyone agrees that the first Mumblecore movie is a film called Funny Haha from 2002, which was directed by Andrew Bajalski and starring Kate Dallenmeyer. I, I saw this one. I thought it was pretty great. It's a little more on the cringy side, and it's like super micro budget, but it kind of has some freshness to it. Um, and I can see why it inspired a bunch of people to just basically like grab a camera and start filming really naturalistic dialogue with characters who have kind of interesting and subtly evolving relationship dynamics. But the next several years, there were several more made. The, the directors I've actually, I haven't seen maybe more than 10 or 15 that are in the mumblecore subgenre, but some creators of note. So one is a director named Lynn Shelton. She unfortunately passed away in 2020, if I'm not mistaken, fairly young. She had two fairly big crossover hits, at least in the realm of indie movies. One called Laggies, starring Kira Knightley, and Your Sister's Sister, which is about, it's like a love triangle. Um, She's not my favorite of the, the Mumblecore writers and directors. I think she tends a, a bit too much on plot contrivances. But another name on my radar is Cooper Rafe. I might have mentioned him. I know I've mentioned him to you, Brian. I might have mentioned him on the pod. So he's only released one movie, and it's it bears an unfortunate name, at least in my opinion, uh, Shithouse. I don't know why he decided to call his first movie Shithouse, but this is a pretty fantastic movie about college freshmen, or I guess they might be college sophomores, I can't remember, who 
uh, have like basically three days where they keep bumping into each other and talking to each other. And I, I really like this movie. It came out in 2020. The interesting thing about this one is that Cooper Rafe is only 23 or 24 years old. So he's like a decade younger than me and like making this movie that I absolutely love. Maybe my favorite of last year. So he's he's definitely a name on my radar. But the the main guy on my radar, the one who I have enjoyed the most is the director of this film, Joe Swanberg. So he he's only 40, but he's been extremely prolific. He's directed 21 movies and in 2011 alone, he released six. And most years he's released at least one movie. Wow. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense. Like, it's probably easier to make a movie like this than other movies. But that still is a lot of movie making for one year. Yeah. Anything you got to get multiple people together for, it's an undertaking. You know, when you're paying people, it makes it easier, but still impressive. Yeah. One thing of note is he really leans into the improvisational naturalism of the dialogue. So he semi-famously, for many of his movies, and I think this one is included, doesn't write a script. He just writes story beats and gives it to the actors and rehearses with them and then just films it. And I think you see definitely some improvisation in these scenes, like when they're playing with the kid or like brainstorming romance novel things or something like that. You definitely see some improvisation here for sure. The majority of his movies are just like interpersonal comedy dramas like this one. But like I mentioned, he, I think, produced and directed one of the segments in the VHS. Yeah, I, I have seen several of those movies. And he's done a few other weird ones. So I've actually, this is the fourth Joe Swanberg movie I've seen. My favorite and the first one I saw is called Drinking Buddies. And it's about these two people who work at a brewery. One of them is Jake Johnson, who you might know from New Girl. He's Nick in New Girl. Not the uh, director of Jumanji and Pagemaster. Uh... I don't think they're the same person. No, I think that was Joe Johnston. Okay, similar. Actually, Jake Johnson, I really like him. He's one of my, near the top of my list of comedy actors that I'll, I'll watch in just about anything. But he's actually in the three other Joe Swanberg movies I've seen. He's the star of the three other ones I've seen. So he's in Drinking Buddies with Olivia Wilde. He was in a movie called Digging for Fire that Swanberg directed, which is about these house sitters who start digging a hole in the backyard of a house that they're sitting at because they think there might be like a dead body down there or something like that. If you think this one has an anticlimactic ending that we watched today, digging for fire raises that anticlimactic ending to a new level. <laughs> so I'm guessing they don't find anything in the hole. I'll go ahead and spoil it now. Skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't want to know what happens in digging for fire. But yeah, so there's like a thing where the husband and wife argue about whether they should keep digging the hole. Jake Johnson keeps digging the hole. He finds what he thinks might be a bone sticking out. And then he's like, no, I shouldn't do this. And then buries the hole and walks away. There's there's a lot of emotional texture to it. All right. Well, that is even worse than finding nothing. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm glad that we're just doing this now before we watch this film. Yeah. The one I think you're most likely to like, Brian, if or anyone who really is into 
stories that have a little bit more of a resolution and a little bit more of a clear narrative arc is one called Win It All, where Jake Johnson plays a gambling addict who gets entrusted to keep a large suitcase full of money for six months and must resist the temptation to dip into the suitcase full of money and go gamble it away. It's very good. Uh, I would put that uh, just a hair below Drinking Buddies as far as the Swanbergs I've seen. So I guess the last thing I wanted to opine on is I clearly have some enthusiasm for, for Mumblecore and these types of movies, but why do I like them? I mean, I think if you listen to this podcast enough, you could probably infer most of them because it does a lot of things that I tend to say that I like. It really emphasizes vibe and character chemistry, just like characters kind of interacting and getting a feeling for the way that they're acting. We use vibe a lot of different ways, but I think that's kind of one one kind of vibe that we discuss. And, and Mumblecore movies in general, but particularly Swanberg films, tend to have a really good character relationship interaction vibe. I also think there's just something about movies that are kind of so low-key and naturalistic and not too many things happen that when there are these subtle shifts or minor shifts in relationships or status quo, it tends to feel bigger, feel more momentous. And something about that is just kind of appealing to me. I don't know what it is. It's kind of weird to say, like, because less happens, it's more interesting but that that is kind of how I feel about it. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's a straight drama. Like, the peaks and troughs of what's happening between the people is what gives the story what oomph it has. So I can understand that. I'd say what I like about Mumblecore and my appreciation for it, even before I had watched a movie, is I do like the message that anybody can make a movie wherever they are at whatever budget. I think that's a good message to have. Yeah, I, I'm with you. It's it's cool to see these people showing up and constructing interesting scenarios and making real-ass movies on dirt-cheap budgets, for sure. Another thing that I like about Mumblecore movies is that almost all of them are 90 minutes or less, or like maybe up to 93 or 94 minutes. This one I clocked in at 82 minutes, so you can breeze right through them, too. So I'm ready to dive into this movie. Um, what about you, Brian? Let's do it. Before I, I get going, one minor complaint about the movie. It's not actually an issue when you're watching the movie, but when talking about the movie, it is. All the characters have basic white people names. And so I'm going to get them probably mixed up and we'll do our best. But there's Jeff, Kelly, Jenny, and Kevin. So, yeah, all names that to me, do not really stand out from one another. Yeah, and the relationship between Kelly and Jenny is very important, and I, I feel like I might get them mixed up, too. Yeah, yeah. So Happy Christmas opens with Jeff, who is played by Joe Swanberg, the director, and Kelly, who is played by Melanie Linsky. I didn't look up. Is she Australian? She's got to be, or New Zealand-ish. Okay. I don't know. She She's definitely got the, like, oceanic accent. Yeah, yeah. So they're a married couple, and they're parents with a two-year-old kid named Jude. I think he's two, maybe one. And this kid is actually played by Joe Swanberg's son, Jude Swanberg. And they live in the suburbs of Chicago. What did you think of baby Jude Swanberg, Brian? This is not a telegenic child at all. 
Like, they say he's two. He looks big enough to be two, but he has, like, little baby levels of hair. Like, this patchy bald hair, this potato-shaped head. You can really tell that were he not the director's son, he would not be cast. It's interesting. I don't know if I would say not telegenic, because he's, like, charming. He's very toddler charming in a way. Not annoying. He, like, talks, and he's goofy, and he eats his food. I really thought he was fun. I, he, but he doesn't look like a an actor baby. He doesn't look like a baby model or anything like that. Which right. to me also enhanced it because there was like a sense of this is an actual person's toddler. Yeah, I mean it's a real kid. That's for sure. Yeah. So yeah, they're a married couple living in the suburbs of Chicago, and we learn early on that Joe is a full time worker, but Kelly stays at home with the baby, and they're both pretty happy, pretty involved parents. Kelly seems a bit overwhelmed, but they're seem to be doing pretty decently. Another thing that we kind of get on the fringes of their personality is, you know, they have a new kid. They still have this vestiges in their personality of being fun, socially active young adults and are kind of in the midst of transitioning to a settled down adulthood. And I would say a major theme of this movie is kind of the clash between people who are in that phase and people who are just a few years away from that phase. Because as we see just a couple minutes in, Jeff's younger sister, Jenny, played by Anna Kendrick, is coming back to town. I, it, I think it seems like this is the town where she and, and Jeff grew up. It's kind of hard to tell, but certainly she knows at least one person in town. But she's, she's coming to town, staying with Jeff and Kelly and their kid after a bad breakup with a boyfriend. We get the sense that this was probably Jeff's idea to let his sister crash with them for a while and not Kelly's. And we do see later that it's not meant to be a very long-term thing. She's out apartment hunting at one point, but the movie doesn't really spend that long dwelling on exactly the parameters of her staying there. But she is definitely more of a young adult than than Jeff or Kelly. Like, uh, no attachments and excited to go out in the evening. Yeah, she's a party girl. To some extent, it's we see her party once and and sort of twice and use drugs constantly in between. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pot and like all of the state of Colorado is using pot. I, I guess it's I don't see this film painting drug use in a positive light. I do agree with that. Well, actually, you know what? I take it back. It's certainly not 100 percent positive, but there are moments like when she and her brother share a joint halfway through the film and they like seem to be having a really good time and enjoying each other's company that it's, I wouldn't say it's a negative depiction of drug use. It certainly is not like a stoner film, like a pro it's really funny and cool when you use drugs. I suppose so, but I'd say it champions moderation. I think that's probably fair. Um, especially cause this, this first night she, she goes out, parties with her friend Carson. And so Carson is played by uh, Lena Dunham. I think that's how you say her name, who is at this point a celebrity in her own right. This was before her breakout, I think, or maybe it was after. I don't know, because she was the creator of the HBO show Girls and became kind of a lightning rod of controversy for the first half of the 2010s. Did you ever watch Girls, Brian, or read much about it? No, I've never had um, HBO. I have seen a couple of the shows because a while back Hulu had like a library of older HBO stuff. So I've seen The Wire 
for instance, in Flight of the Concords, which is how I can place a potential New Zealand accent. But Nice. Uh, no, had not seen that one before, although I have heard of Lena Dunham somewhat by reputation. Yeah, she's pretty low-key in this one. Um, but anyways, uh, Kelly goes out, goes to a party with her friend Carson, and this is just like a pretty relaxed party at someone's apartment. But Kelly, this is Anna Kendrick, she has a little bit too much to drink. In fact, quite a bit too much to drink. And she kind of passes out in a bed, the owner's bed. And she needs to get carried out. Like, she's just a total mess. It's a very non-cute and non-charming depiction of drinking too much. Um, Jeff goes and picks her up at the party and, like, has to carry her out to the car. So a couple things at this point in the movie. One is... I was pro Anna Kendrick at this point. You know, sometimes you're in a bad place in life and you need to fall back on the kindness of your friends and family. Maybe you, you got to crash with somebody. I can relate. And then she goes and she parties and she has a good time and she gets drunk at a party where everybody's drinking. And it's like, is it really that unexpected that somebody's going to get a little too sloppy? and need some assistance getting out. I don't think that's too terrible at this point. Especially, I didn't really have a good sense of what led to her needing to be here. I guess uh, maybe they did mention the breakup. But something has happened, and she she needs to, um, you know, needs a helping hand. So at this point, I wasn't too down on Anna Kendrick. The other thing I want to say is that the basement that she's staying in, her brother's basement, is a tiki bar, which I like a lot. So that's awesome. Good, Really good thing to do with your basement is turn it into a tiki bar. Agreed. Although I think they mentioned it was like that when they bought it. I think it's kind of hard to tell whether like it's ironic or quasi-ironic appreciation of the tiki bar. It's like a little over the top for a fairly buttoned-down couple. But I am with you. I unironically totally dig this house and this basement. Th- this whole house has got like a lot of wood paneling and a lot of like beige, like orangish beige. And it actually is kind of an appealing visual look. One thing about Joe Swanberg is that he, despite making very low budget films, he's known for thinking a lot and spending a lot of effort on how his films look, like from a cinematography perspective. He actually shoots some of his own movies, which it's not too often that directors are their own cinematographers and vice versa. This one he didn't he was not the cinematographer for it was someone named Ben Richardson who has shot a couple of Swanberg's movies. I I thought the movie actually like looked warm and inviting in general like it's kind of got warm hues throughout most of its duration and there's like a graininess to the film. Yeah, it made a lot of use of like yellows and reds. It almost felt like a Wes Anderson, especially the uh the opening credits. There were like a lot of little setups of little quirky objects placed just so in the frame that were yellow and red and it reminded me of like a Wes Anderson opening yeah I can definitely see that one thing that Anna Kendrick had promised to do was babysit the next morning but of course she's just completely a wreck because she had been drinking way too much the night before and so it it seems as if they have recruited someone else to babysit I guess he's a friend I don't know who this guy is but his name is Kevin and so We see Kelly waking up to Kevin babysitting little Jude. So that's kind of an introduction of this character and this relationship, Kelly and Kevin. 
Jenny and Kevin. Oh my God, you're right. Jenny and Kevin. <laughs> Jenny is Anna Kendrick, and Kevin is this babysitter guy. It doesn't help. There's like there's like a lot of J and K names, and they bleed over into reality. Jenny is played by Kendrick. Then there's Kelly. I don't know. And then there's okay. Jeff is played by a Joe. So that's J and J. But then then there's Jude. There's Kevin. There's lots of J's and K's in real life and fictional. But Kelly, who's the mom, Melanie Linsky, the perhaps Australian actress. I'm going to look that up right now because I want to know. I'm sorry to divert. Melanie Jane Linsky is a New Zealand actress. So there you go. All right. Nailed it. Boom. The next evening, Kelly Melanie Linsky confronts Jenny Anna Kendrick, worried that like the, the going out and partying too hard the first night is a harbinger of a lot of trouble and drama to come, especially with the context that it's not her sister. You know, it's the husband's sister. I don't really blame Kelly at all for this reaction. It does lead to a funny scene where Kelly insists that Jeff, the husband, go tell his sister, you got to clean up your act if you're staying here. And he just kind of walks in and grabs a piece of candy and then walks out. It reminds me of the scene in Fargo where William H. Macy is a car salesman and he tells someone he has to go ask his manager about like a negotiation and he steps out, just says hi to someone, has a sip of coffee and walks back. It's like you're supposed to be doing something, but are really doing nothing. That that moment made me laugh. But over the next few scenes, we see Jenny settling into her life with at Jeff, Kelly and Jude's probably over the span of a, a week or two. And she eventually even does some babysitting by herself. And kind of as all this is going on, we learn through various asides that Christmas is right around the corner. A few scenes are tangentially Christmassy. We see some Christmas decorations. But one thing I was going to ask you, Brian, how much of this movie is a Christmas movie in your perspective? I think it works. Of course, my definition is historically broad. Uh, I mean, I'll even consider a movie that comes out at Christmas to be a Christmas movie, like the Lord of the Rings movies. Totally Christmas movies to me. Because <laughs> they, they were blockbusters that came out in December. Uh, in fact... Titanic, I think, might fall into that category. but Interesting. This is a runner we had last winter where we kept expanding the definition of what a Christmas movie is. It's like not just Die Hard, but any movie that Bruce Willis appears in. That's right. And so, yeah, I, I have a Big Ten approach to Christmas movies. And it was, I mean, it's in the title, so that's probably what got me thinking about it. I never really doubted that it was a Christmas. The description on imdb tv or whatever it was we watched this on says a christmas set comedy okay so it's it may not be a christmas movie but it is a christmas set movie i think that's fair yeah and the movie ha has its climax on christmas it, it doesn't really do christmas e themes very much i would say i mean there's a little bit about like staying close to your family but the things that you think of being that Christmas movies are about remembering to love your family and slow down and celebrate with people and be thankful for the things in your life are not really major themes in this film. Yeah. Nobody gets visited by any ghosts. No ghost hearses run up the stairs in this one. Surprisingly. Yeah. There's no um, musical Muppet monsters. <laughs> there's no questioning how much the Turkey 
down the street costs and whether it's still available. No, no, that's a good point. I mean, the the humans, you know, traditional as they are, based in grounded reality, they still do not like do Christmassy activities. Yeah, I guess they do the Christmas morning. We see a little bit of towards the end. Yeah, yeah, really, that's when it happens. Other than that, right. they are occasionally walking through Christmassy ambience. But on with the plot here, the next kind of moment of the film that leads to some forward narrative propulsion is when Kelly, so the mom, comes home while she had been out like doing grocery shopping or something. And Jenny is babysitting with Carson, uh, the Lena Dunham character. And they all kind of have a drink at the tiki bar. And Jenny and Carson are asking Kelly, oh, yeah, tell us about yourself. What do you do? And she's like, well, I'm a stay at home mom. Oh, but also she wrote a book before her baby was born. And now she stays home and hasn't had a chance to write her second book, which she wants to write. So this scene very much struck a chord with me and my experiences of having a kid where like not entirely positive, like some of the way that Jenny and Carson were kind of like, I think they were trying to be kind and supportive about like, oh, you should follow your dreams but like it's extremely difficult to quote unquote follow your dreams when you have a kid. And so like bugging someone that they should go and do that is like it's meant to be supportive, but it doesn't actually come across as supportive. It like kind of, at least for me, hypothetically makes me feel like less like I'm doing not enough if I'm not actually achieving my dreams. But on the other hand, they're like genuinely interested in her and like the creative things she does. So I thought the scene was like really powerful in terms of capturing a very real dynamic that is like kind of mixed and complex and and done pretty well. It doesn't surprise me that Joe Swanberg was a recent parent when he kind of constructed the story beat, I guess. Yeah. It highlights the difference between people who have kids and people who don't and how it's almost like a language barrier. Right. And I was going to bring this up at some point. I guess it makes sense now. But I kept thinking of an earlier film that we've covered, which is Step Brothers, where you've got adult man-children, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley, who are living off of the charity of their elderly parents. And they have these dreams of, oh, we're going to be rock stars. You know, you got to pursue your passion while they are kind of butting up against their more settled, mature, successful siblings. And I think that's a theme that's explored here in a less silly, less potty-mouthed way. But I noticed a lot of the same beat. That's interesting. I, I can see that. I mean, to me, a difference is like stepbrothers is obviously about how ridiculously childish they are and they're like in their 30s you know they're like older whatever whereas Anna Kendrick is I don't know how old she's supposed to be but I would guess like well they say 27 okay I was gonna guess 25 so like that's kind of the tail end of your free-spirited youth years for most people I think where it's like not that unreasonable to be going out a few times a week and like imagining that your life is going to be going out and writing a great novel and things like that. So to me, it was not a joke or an exaggeration. It was like a kind of a, a more real and plausible dynamic, which I guess is kind of what you're saying there. Mm -hmm. 
No, you're right. I mean, there's a difference between 27 and you look like Anna Kendrick and 40 and you look like John C. Riley. More doors will open for you. Reading between the lines of your remarks, I, I maybe had a little bit more empathy and sympathy towards the Anna Kendrick character in general. As the movie goes along, we, we'll get into my thoughts on <laughs> the way that her character acts. But yeah, they have this conversation about Kelly becoming an author. And Kelly seems to be somewhat stirred by this. And she basically asks Jeff, hey, as my Christmas present, can I get some time and space to really get back to my writing? Go somewhere and treat it like a job for a bit. And Jeff agrees, offering, I guess, his temporarily unused office. It's kind of unclear why. Maybe it's like vacated for the holidays. So she has a space where she can go work. And then now tracking what Anna Kendrick's character, Jenny, is doing at this point is the character Kevin, who was the babysitter earlier, she kind of goes on a date with him at his place. And there was a thing at the end of the babysitting where he said, hey, I'll give you your, my address so you can come pick up the DVDs. And what we learned here later, several scenes later, is that DVDs was just a code word for pot, because apparently this guy is a small time pot dealer and their date. It's not an outright catastrophe. It's around the OK region, maybe slightly south of OK. Like they seem to get along, but they have weird chemistry and they like start hooking up. But Jenny kind of cuts it short very awkwardly and then briefly walks out. Yeah, I don't know. This whole hookup is weird because things seemed to me to be going well. I mean, they've got hands under the shirts and whatever. But then she cuts it abruptly short and doesn't really say why. She's like, yeah, no, okay, yeah. And she just kind of gets up and leaves when, I, I don't know, I, I want more explanation. Because clearly the dude was really into it and like gave her a bunch of weed for free. But I mean, sh sure, she's within her rights to, to cut everything off. But it just was very unclear to me why she did that. Yeah, she's definitely giving mixed signals. And not clear mixed signals. I inferred to her to be like facing some ambivalence with the framework that she recently had a bad breakup with a serious boyfriend. This is like the first guy we see her with. That's not really expounded upon, but that was kind of a current that I detected. And maybe if they were going to like play that up, I think they probably should have emphasized that aspect of her character at least a little bit more. That makes some sense. Because it is definitely super awkward and, and not a, not clear what she's thinking. And I will say in general, I, I found Anna Kendrick to not be a very interesting character or at least not like a character who really has definable traits. It's like I didn't really know what to think of her other than she kind of doesn't really know what she is. And like even what is like the thing underneath when she doesn't really know what it is. She makes a few stupid decisions throughout the movie, but that's not like the main thing about her character. I don't know. And this is an example of a scene where the lack of definition in her character bothered me a little bit. Yeah, it's like as the movie goes along, people keep expecting things of her and rarely does she go along with the expectation. And we'll, we'll see where that goes. Shortly thereafter, Jenny, Anna Kendrick's character, is had dropped something off at the office where Kelly's working on her, her writing and pitches her an idea. What if they together wrote a trashy romance novel? Maybe one that would be easier to sell than the type of literary stuff it seems like Kelly is actually interested in writing. And Kelly kind of reluctantly agrees. And so we get a couple of scenes of them 
Plus, sometimes Jenny's friend Carson brainstorming like what this romance novel that they're going to write together is like this kind of trashy, medieval, raunchy for moms romance novel. I wanted way more specifics about this story that they're putting together. Like we hear that it's a vaguely medieval setting. Other than that, like, do they even name the characters? I want to know what's going on. <laughs> Brian was hooked on this story. This He wanted more of the, the romance novel creation aspect. I can dig that, yeah. Well, right, well, plus to me, this is kind of the crux of another moment that reminded me of Step Brothers because it's like the characters who previously haven't amounted to anything, like they've suddenly found their niche. This is their creative energies being put to work and it's going to come to some culmination. It's going to now, because they have like a more organized, mature conduit in this uh, sister-in-law, that basically all their talents are going to come together and gel and produce some finished thing, is my line of thinking. The uh, description on Amazon, it said... A Christmas set comedy about a young novelist who has recently become a stay-at-home mom. When her reckless sister-in-law moves in, the two women overcome their differences by collaborating on an erotic novel. Oh, man. So I was really expecting this erotic novel. This is going to be big. This is going to be, you know, crucial to the film. So that's interesting. Uh, I did not read that description. And if I had, then what occurred to me in this scene would have been much less of a surprise. So... All of Swanberg's films that I've seen have a little bit of a romantic comedy structure to them, where think about the beats of a romantic comedy, you know, maybe they they meet and it seems like it's okay, but then uh, there's something about them they don't like, but then they start to reluctantly hit it off and then it seems like things are going great and then they kind of have a falling out and then they eventually make up. And none of his movies directly fall into that, but they all borrow elements from that. And I was like, what is that in this movie? As I was watching and I was like, is it going to be the weird drug dealer boyfriend guy? And then I realized if to the extent that there is a romantic comedy structure in this one, it's between Anna Kendrick and Melanie Linsky's characters. Those are the two people who kind of have an arc that somewhat resembles a romantic comedy. And this is like the scene where they are really hitting it off or these, these couple of scenes here. I, you're right, we don't get much of the novel itself, but I think we get enough from the scenes of them together to know that it it is indeed like something that they are bonding over and something that are they are genuinely engaged in and interested in with each other. And so I agree. I, I could have seen I would have wanted even more of this subplot because I, I thought it was fun whenever we were seeing that. Most of the scenes we actually get are just like semi jokey about what would medieval people call their private parts and stuff. Right. Yeah. No, I thought this was good, too. And nothing in this description can I disagree with. They do collaborate on the novel. This is them collaborating, and it does help them, you know, see each other's value more and get along better. Right. So we kind of have a new status quo with a couple of fun scenes of that. One scene that happens around this time I enjoyed, I think I already mentioned, is where Jeff, so Joe Swanberg, catches Jenny, that is Anna Kendrick's character, smoking some pot in her bedroom and eventually he agrees to smoke some himself and they kind of vibe for a few minutes to some music and this to me was the moment where I was able to see that we're not supposed to see Anna Kendrick's character as totally self-destructive like it's okay that she's just a floating along mildly self-destructive young adult that's just what 
young adults do when they're 27 years old or whatever it is. I don't know. I, I, I could, I liked this scene a little bit. It, it made me appreciate the characters and their relationship a little bit more. It also turns out despite that, that awkward almost took up Jenny and Kevin do continue to see each other on subsequent dates that seemed to go decently pretty well. I thought they'd never really had much chemistry. It always felt kind of weird. Like they were just happened to be bored, attractive young people hanging out together. Like there wasn't really anything that they saw on each other, except maybe that he had a bunch of weed, you know, but they do continue to see each other until the evening of Christmas Eve, Jenny and Kevin are out. And Jenny, another kind of reading between the lines for me is she's presumably very lonely at this moment because it's her first holiday away from her ex. And she gets a little sloppy at a bar with Kevin, stumbles home. Okay, well, hold up, back up just a second, because I think you're missing an important element. Okay. So they're at the bar, they're drinking, Jenny and Kevin, the guy that she walked out on earlier. And when they're leaving the bar, she's like, oh, come home with me, Kevin. And he says, oh, sorry, no, I made a promise to my mom that I'd go home and spend Christmas with my folks. And remember, this is Christmas Eve. And she gets pissy about it. You know, he is walking out, sure, but giving a reason for doing so when earlier she did that, did not give any reason, expects him to be cool with it. But now she's going to go home and throw a fit and like burn the house down. (laughs) Because what happens? Well, I do want to circle in on that a little bit because I did not read that the same way that you did. I mean, elements of what you said, I agree with. I mean, first of all, they're much further along in their relationship than the first date. True. And so like their dynamic is certainly going to be different at this point. She just seemed like drunk and horny to me and like was a little bit annoying about it. Like, I I don't know. It didn't seem to me over the line. She's like, what do you mean you got it? What do you mean you got to leave? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But anyways, so yeah, she stumbles home and she's not a good sight at this point. I want to say I'm not endorsing her behavior at all. She like steals some liquor from the tiki bar and smokes a little bit. And then she throws a frozen pizza in the oven and then just kind of like passes out on her bed, presumably having forgotten about the frozen pizza in the oven. And then we cut to a scene of Jeff and Kelly waking up in the middle of the night very smoky in their room. The smoke alarm is going off and they're understandably freaking out, like panicking. I mean, they have a two-year-old in the house or however old. Is there a fire? What's going on? And they eventually, before too long, figure out what is happening. Like there's food burning in the oven that a sloshed Jenny had thrown in there and, and forgotten to take out. And so, of course, they had been panicked and that panic now turns to anger. I mean, I don't know if leaving a pizza in the oven is something that could ever eventually like lead to a house fire. It seems like if there's going to be smoke in the house, that is about the most innocuous explanation. But I also very much empathize with Jeff and Kelly absolutely freaking out and yelling. They're really mean to Jenny, and that's not to say she doesn't deserve it, but they're they're quite mean to her. They're like calling her an asshole and stuff. Oh, I was with them at this point. Yeah, they say she call her a selfish asshole, and she doesn't apologize. Like, they're freaking out because the kid is in the house, and who knows, you know, what is the source of the fire? And I mean, yeah, they're still mad even once they determine that it's bread in the oven or or whatever it is. But, like, this was an irresponsible thing to do, and... Oh, definitely. Yeah. Kelly, Jenny, oh, these names. 
Anna Kendrick needs to be more penitent. She needs to atone, in my mind. We had some words beforehand, but she needs to, like, is it profligate? She needs to, like, do dogeza or something. She's got she's to bow down. It's like, I don't know. They have gone out of their way, having her in their house, and this is a, a big problem. Yeah, no, she, she definitely comes across as unlikable here. And I don't know, to me, the flip side of it, it's like I'm trying to put myself in, in her shoes. And, like, she wakes up, you know, probably still pretty drunk the middle of the night, and people are just, like, shouting horrible things at her when, like, the thing that she did is a very easy mistake to make. You leave something in the oven and forget about it. I mean, granted, obviously, it's made much worse by the fact that she passed out and left it there. I don't see her as outright villainous. I do see her as obviously done something really stupid here, but it is definitely exacerbated. I don't know if like you think about her. So she wakes up, they shout at her. They tell her, why are you here? Like, what are you doing? And then she wakes up Christmas morning and like your last interaction was them calling you a selfish asshole. So here's what she does is she basically runs off to sulk, goes to a movie by herself and in her own words, hides from the family drama that she has stirred and so jeff and kelly they wake up in the morning they're in a much better mood they've slept it off they know that no one's actually in danger everyone's safe it's christmas morning they go get their kid they open presents and eventually they find that jenny isn't even there at all uh she's run off and so they're bummed about that and they they still have some understandable choice words for her doing that because it is a pretty low thing to do i guess to the extent that this is a christmas movie we would expect this is the moment where everybody hugs and forgives each other but it doesn't quite happen like that here. Eventually, Kelly finds that where Jenny has gone is the office where they had been writing that erotic novel together. And the movie ends with them having a bit of a reconciliation and then heading back to, I guess, have Christmas dinner together and end the film. Well, they also make it very clear they did not finish the book. That's right. This is an important point because Kelly, the wife, the mother says, what, you you really thought we were going to finish, write a whole book in 10 days? And Anna's Kendrick is like, well, yeah. I mean, we were, you know, we were hyped about it. We were passionate about it. It was what was bringing us together. And I was saying, yeah, it's the thing in the Amazon description. <laughs> you, you wrote a book. Although now that I reread it, I, I see it says collaborate on a book. It does not say write a book. It does not say finish a book. But to me, this movie was like, stepbrothers with no Catalina wine mixer at the end. There's no Will Ferrell stepping up to the mic and singing Porti Volare. No moment where the kind of loser character's spark shines. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it's reflective of the objectives of Swanberg movies and Mumblecore movies in general, where they tend to end in an ambiguous state. So life goes on. Some things might have happened, but everything didn't finish and i was a little disappointed we didn't see like more of where it went with the novel and stuff because that's kind of the, ends up being the main narrative push here but it also didn't surprise me at all like that's kind of just par for the course of this kind of movie where things just kind of float for a bit and then it's done and i think there's something to be said for like that is kind of realistic like in life, things don't always happen in big swings. They happen gradually and with lurches and rises and ebbs and flows. So that sort of anticlimactic ending didn't bother me all that much. 
again because I also kind of knew what I was expecting going in. But yeah, they did not finish the novel. Although there is a thing where Jeff says, I think you should keep writing your novel. And she says, okay. And so maybe they'll keep working on it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's unclear. Yeah. I feel like if we got more of the book further along with the book or Jenny were more openly apologetic and just taking steps to contribute more to the household, I, w- I would feel better about this ending. Gotcha. Yeah, perhaps if she had more of a growth in her character, because she doesn't really have growth in her character. Right, right. So why don't we talk a little bit about some good things and some not so good things. Hit a lot of my points. Brian, were there any good things you wanted to throw in here about the movie that we haven't discussed yet? Yeah, I'll say, I mean, I guess we did discuss it. I will just second that the parents seem like good parents. I mean, they're involved with the kid's life and clearly care about his well-being, and also the well-being of their families, you know? They do invite the sister in to stay, and uh, it sounds like at one point the wife's brother was staying there too, or just visiting, and, you know, they, they have this network of family that is clearly valuable to them. And so, unlike some of the movies we've watched where, quote-unquote, nothing happens... Well, for one, I felt things did happen in this movie. There was a very clear progression from point A to point B to point C. So I want to give kudos for that. This is not a narrative you're going to get lost in. You're going to understand generally why things happened and how things are progressing. It's not just a hangout movie. Yeah, to add on to the the parents, I don't think I've ever seen a movie that better captured the feeling and the kind of weird dynamics of being a new parent better than this one or more honestly than this one like this really felt true to what it feels like to be a new parent in the midst of a transition from living a life for yourself to living a life for your kids and your family and all the sacrifices and changes you have to make for that but you're still you it's not like you're not you anymore and you still want to do things and have things and the clash of that again i i can't remember ever seeing that dynamic better captured so Um, I really liked that. And I would say in general, like just an overall thing about the movie is it did what I like about Swanberg bumblecore dramedies really well. It scratched the itch for me where it's kind of funny, but not jokey. It's got fun dialogue. It's clearly improvised. The character relationships are pretty rich and interesting and kind of evolve a little bit as the movie goes along. And it's pleasant to look at. It's not like ugly like some cheap movies are. It's got a, at least a little bit of a aesthetic to it. And, you know, I, I don't mind the sort of ambiguity, anticlimactic, not much of an arc. I do wish there was a little bit more of one in this one, but I, I just kind of like it, uh, this this type of movie and the way that, that Swanberg does it. And I felt like even if this wasn't at the top of my list for the movies I've seen by him, it did a lot of the things I like that he, he does well. It's kind of like when we were talking about Clash of the Titans your overall good thing is you just like Ray Harryhausen effects. And so that elevates the movie because it's about seeing the Ray Harryhausen effects, regardless of the other stuff that feeds into that. And for me, it's kind of the same thing. I like Joe Swanberg Mumblecore movies when they do their thing. And the rest of the stuff is feeds into it, whether or not I like it all that much. I still just like the movie just because I, I like the way that he, he makes them and depicts them. So, yeah. Nice. It's like promise of the premise, but promise of the artist. Yeah, exactly. It's like pure 
mechanism of storytelling. Yeah, just seeing them do their thing. Right. I think I hit most of my other things that I liked as we were going along. I like the baby, and I like the house. Although, even if the baby was a little doofy looking and the house was a little kitschy. Oh, yeah. I like Tiki Bar a lot. If I were in a place where I had to stay in somebody's basement, this would be like the ideal situation. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about some some not-so-good things. One thing I found for this one is, like, if you talk about the characters in isolation, with the exception of the mom, who is Kelly, I couldn't really tell you much about the characters themselves. So, like, I could tell you about their relationships and, like, what age and things they do, but I felt like the characters were poorly defined even for a movie that is mostly just improvised dialogue. And I was hoping there would be a little more something you could use to describe the characters and latch onto for the characters is like, that is what that character is. I mean, Anna Kendrick is just Anna Kendrick being a little bit of a train wreck, you know, she's not much else. Yeah. This is a great point. Like in a movie where all you have basically is four characters interacting in a very limited number of locations. It's basically people hanging out at a house or maybe going to the grocery store or the office. We should know more about who these people are. Uh, for instance, the wife wrote a book at some point. What is the book about? I don't know. Did you catch it, Dan? What, what happens in this first book? All I caught is that it's like a unsuccessful, literary, probably pretty good book, but we don't know like the premise or anything like that. Right. So a really formative YouTube video for me, and I'm sure some of you, was the uh, Red Letter Media review of Star Wars The Phantom Menace. I bring this up because he talks about the last Starfighter and um, the early Star Wars films as having a protagonist who gets thrust into a weird new world. And that this requires exposition. The character needs to get brought up to speed. And here, all these characters, like even Carson, it seems, Lena Dunham, know everything about each other already. And so we're not privy to any catching up. We're not told, oh, tell me, Kelly, about that first book you published. And so we're just kind of left in the dark about so much. I don't mind the way that in general, like things kind of organically develop and are revealed as as the movie goes along and you kind of get some of it filled in but this one i think didn't have enough of that I, i'm with you there another thing i didn't like the whole the pot dealer character like the kind of new boyfriend i didn't like any of their interactions very much he is a character didn't do it for me the romance didn't really do it for me out of all the relationships that i thought were pretty rich and interesting this one was not rich and interesting to me and so I feel like it could have been more interesting if the movie had done a little bit more with Anna Kendrick has just gone through a bad breakup. Like that could have been the, the, the impetus of exploring this relationship and all of its awkwardness. But I feel like the movie didn't give us enough to get there. Sure. Like I didn't even understand. I, you know, I missed the second that they mentioned it, that that was the reason Anna Kendrick was coming to stay. Right. The feeling that I got from this relationship I thought they actually brought him over to, like, meet her mm. to, and to, like, set him up. I thought it was like a zoo. They've got her, you know, in the enclosure in the basement and they're bringing in the new panda to see how they get along in their little, like, scientific laboratory. 
Right. Uh, that was that was how I was seeing it. Like they just wanted to put the two bugs in the jar and shake it and see how it went. Well, that wraps up my thoughts on the movie, Brian. Before we get to rating, was there anything else you wanted to throw on here? Yeah. Last not so good thing is just I found myself by the end really down on the Anna Kendrick character. If I haven't made that clear. Uh, and partially, I'm going to admit, it's because I kind of see some of myself in a character who is imposing on others. But I feel like if I were in this situation, because there are been, have been times where I have felt like a mooch, I will say that. But I feel like if I went to the extent that she does in this film, I would hate myself a lot more and just be more vocal about the fact that I did. She is not as apologetic as I feel like she needs to be. I think that's fair. Especially when everybody's scared with the, the fire with the baby in the house. Like, Dan, imagine if a situation came about where I had to stay in your basement and I caused a, a fire. That's a serious, terrible thing. And yes, it was not a full-fledged fire because it was a pizza in the oven, but it was a careless thing brought about by alcohol use. Just a very irresponsible use of somebody else's space with no respect for their safety, not followed up by an apology. That would certainly be off-putting. Yeah, I mean, she she definitely comes across as unlikable in that moment, for sure, and not doing the right thing. So definitely if your enjoyment of the movie is going to hinge on you growing with the character, and I, I, that's things I typically value, too. I don't know why this one didn't bother me quite as much. Like, that's the type of thing that does tend to bother me. I don't know why it didn't this time. Maybe I just knew the vibe was coming. It was going to be, and it was going to be like mixed and somewhat negative like that. And it didn't bother me as much as it bothered you, but I do agree that she comes out looking worse by the end. Like, mm -hmm. Not really sympathetically trying to get her life on the tracks, like just being a blob and, and making mistakes. Right. Well, we do see her. I mean, she goes and tours that apartment, but it was never clear to me what her job is. Was that explained? It's not explained at all. Does she have a job? Is she going to get one? What does she want to do? Etc. That said, the apartment that they go to look at, it's like $750 a month. It's like, and, and maybe it's, you know, a, a roommate arrangement. It might be like a, a room in a, like a townhouse. But even so, like that is primo. Yeah. And it's near Chicago, which shouldn't be the cheapest area. But yeah. But I'm sure maybe there are cheaper areas of Chicago, possibly. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, I am ready to throw a rating on this thing. What about you, Brian? Yes. So, Is It Good is our signature section where Brian and I each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, that's a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Tour de Good, an eight out of eight. Brian, is Happy Christmas good? So, here's what I'm going to say. When I watched the movie... I was into it a little more than I might be sounding like now. You know, it came and it went, and it didn't didn't bother me too much overall. But now that I've let things stew in my mind and, and just, you know, put some critical thought to it, where it falls for me is that unlike some movies where they were, you know, uneventful and it was just about, like, capturing a space or something, I didn't really get a lot out of it. I was feeling for these characters. I was pulled into this movie. Like, I really felt for the parent characters and just was very put off by the Anna Kendrick character. 
it's it's kind of like you know we we talked thanksgiving movies not that long ago and i was thinking of um planes trains and automobiles where john candy's whole character is that he's off-putting you know he's he's like a burden that steve martin has to carry around but then like as the movie goes along he gets humanized and you start to feel for him and you like start to see his his good points i feel like anna kendrick needed more of that here because i went into this movie kind of an anna kendrick fan I've seen, I think I saw Pitch Perfect 2, and it was fine, but, like, she um, she was in the uh, Into the Woods musical. I liked her in that. And just broadly speaking, I would say I, I like Anna Kendrick. I did not like this character. I really did not like this character. So where I land with this emotional connection and just this feeling of really, like, ugh, bitterness towards a character... I, I am falling at three for this movie, which I think we've labeled not not good. Uh, it's a well-made film, and uh, the story pulled me in. But I, I, I do have, like, oh, just some consternation, some frustration. I'd be interested to hear what your reaction is to other Joe Swanberg movie. I'm pleased that this provoked emotions in you and i'm sorry that they were not an always positive emotions oh no that's i mean we don't always go for positive that's yeah and you know we need more than that i guess I, i'm glad that the storytelling mode resonated with you enough that you were able to connect to the characters and the vibe of it a little bit definitely so i i would say i don't know if i'll pick another swanberg movie for the podcast but i'd really love to hear at some point your take on maybe win it all which is a little more structured, or maybe Drinking Buddies, which I really liked. It's, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'd like to. But what about you, Dan? Where does Happy Christmas 2014 fall for you? Yeah, so I, I, I vibed with it overall much more than you did. And um, I have been waffling on exactly what my rating is. Overall, my reaction is positive. So I'm going to be above the line between a four and a five, which is kind of where I go from not positive to positive towards the film. And so this is going to be above a four for me. And I would say that I'm at a, a high five or a low six. I have been waffling on it. And I think this type of movie doesn't really benefit from teasing out its details too much. I would say that teasing out the details with you a little bit and really thinking about exactly what it says and doesn't says and how much I was just kind of inferring and guessing things that are not really text, but are kind of crucial to what I was thinking about the different characters and how that's not really well established. For example, is does she have a serious breakup that she just went through? How is that emotionally impacting her? Uh, what is her vision of her life going forward? What is, are any of these characters visions of their lives going forward and how that's a little bit lacking. And really, even if the, the relationships are good, the characters themselves are not either not very memorable or in the case of Anna Kendrick, at least a little bit problematic. Or maybe not problematic, but not not enjoyable to spend time with. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with a five on this one. I think this is a good movie. I, I like this style of movie. I could I could watch movies like this all day every day, and I do plan to watch more of them down the line. But this I would probably put in the same tier of the ones that I've seen as Digging for Fire, where I liked it, but it, it didn't elevate itself in any way. I think this is a good movie though. I'm giving it a five. So. Brian, what are we going to be watching and discussing next week? Well, Dan, I have some ideas. I'm going to enlighten you in just a second here. Uh, I wanted to issue actually some corrections quickly. 
Should have done it at the start of the episode, but might as well do it now. So actually, during the course of the episode, I said that uh, Anna Kendrick should profligate herself. What I meant was prostrate, which means to lie stretched out on the ground with one's face downward. Mm. Uh, profligate means recklessly extravagant or wasteful in the use of resources, or a licentious degenerate person is a profligate. I see. So perhaps being a profligate, she should prostrate herself. There you go. Some good vocab for us. SAT podcast. Yes, my other correction is from a previous episode. Faithful listener Sean brought to my attention that I misidentified a fighting game character. I referred to the four-armed Mortal Kombat character as Balrog. This is wrong. The four-armed Mortal Kombat character is called Goro. I was picturing in my head the green monster character from Street Fighter, whose name is actually Blanca. Blanca is the green monster from Street Fighter who does not have four arms. Balrog is the African-American boxer character from Street Fighter. So you just had it all in a stew in your head. It was all mixed up. Goro, though, is who I was going for. Okay, Goro, yeah. Cool. Thank you for the... We should have corrections being a recurring thing because I've noticed some mistakes as I listen back to episodes. I should jot them down for, for future reference, but yeah. Yes, yeah, we, we both make them. They, they crop in, so please, if you are an <laughs> eagle-eared listener uh, and attentive, please bring them to our notice. Uh, okay, but what are we watching next week? So... I realized that uh, in Turkey Hollow, I was kind of down on that one, too. I said basically that it, it has Jim Henson's name front and center and doesn't perhaps live up to his legacy. It's like uh, I, I said ghoulish. It felt ghoulish to me. So I wanted to bring a Christmas special that actually does have Jim Henson's fingerprints on it. And so what I am assigning is Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. I think it's from 1978 pretty early on during the days of the Muppet Show, and certainly it is a uh, Muppet project in all but name. So I, I think it is still retained in ownership by the Jim Henson Company. But uh, it's cool. It's got some uh, radio control puppet effects, and uh, I've watched it a lot. So it's an old favorite, and it's because this is Christmas week, so at least when we're recording, that uh, it will be. Well, cool. Yeah, I'll look forward to watching it. Maybe I'll even watch it with my kids. Awesome. It should be fun. Last year, we did a, a holiday special. We did Pee Wee of your selection, so I'm glad that we have another holiday special. Distinctly a special and not a movie. Right, right. Yeah, I haven't watched too many Christmas movies yet, but I definitely got to toss on Pee Wee before the uh, week is out. It's Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> it's snowing. All right. Well, listeners, now that you've heard from us, let's hear from someone else. Email us a review of Happy Christmas or any film we've previously discussed, and we might read yours. And if we do pick your review, we'll send you a $5 Amazon gift card, enough for a free movie rental. You can send your review to thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. That's thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, that mailbox is always open. Even if you don't want to send us a review, you just want to say hi, give us some feedback, please reach out to us. Yeah, we want, we want to hear back from the void. The review I'm going to read today, we haven't been getting too many review submissions, so I want to make sure we have at least some other voice on the 
ends of these episodes. So I'm going to start reading letterboxed reviews I find of movies in the, the weeks we don't have submissions. So here, here's a, the review of the week, and this is from Letterboxd user Sean Gilman, whose username is The End of Cinema. And he wrote in a 3.5-star movie of Happy Christmas, It's strange to see a film so utterly devoid of style, artfulness, subtext, or even text itself. Still, I'm quite happy to spend 90 minutes watching Anna Kendrick hang out, get stoned, and read the internet. That she's able to create any kind of emotionally engaging character out of this nothingness is a wonder. So he was higher on Anna Kendrick than certainly you were, Brian. But I thought that was an interesting perspective on how this type of movie creates something out of nothing. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the case where, again, I can't really disagree with anything that was said. <laughs> it's like she doesn't do much, but it's still Anna Kendrick who is likable, generally. But the character, no, not for me. But yeah, Sean, I'll reach out to you, let you know you are review of the week. And Brian, as always, thank you very much for joining, for watching. Oh, thank you, Dan. This was a fun discussion. Yeah, always glad to talk movies. I like it when, when we have reactions, and especially if... One of us is high and one of us is low. That always makes for a fun discussion. So thank you, and we'll talk next week. Thanks, everybody. You get a chance to catch up with this one, Brian? Yep. Got it on uh, Amazon Prime. Handy service, you know, even if it's not uh, streaming, spend, you know, a buck or two or three and check out most films. Yeah, yeah. I, that's how I watched I watched it, too. And um, sorry, I'll probably cut that out. Um, yeah. Yeah, you could pretty much cut that whole section. I mean, people can assume we watched the movie. I know. I, I always I don't know why I asked that, because it's like a kind of a given that we're talking oh no i didn't watch it okay well see you next episode you know? <laughs> <laughs> that'll be our next that'll be our next april one it'll be time it'll be easy to do we'll just start it off that way <laughs>